This is Hard Beautiful Journey, a safe space to be open and honest, to speak truth and harness the power of vulnerability and sharing. Unravel the strength of connecting through conversation from mental health, trauma and addictions, to grief and spirituality. This is the podcast to use your voice, because when you use your voice, you ignite your soul. I am your host, Tiffany Vaughn. Join me as I help others talk about their hard, beautiful journey. I know they will inspire you as much as they inspire me. So let's get started. Hey there, welcome to Hard Beautiful Journey. Do I have an interview for you today? Holy smokes. One of my biggest life lessons that I am working on is patience. And I needed patience in this case because I finally, finally, after a year, had the opportunity to sit down with one of the members of our collective journey, also known as OCJ. My guest is Ryan Oscar, who is one of three co-founders of OCJ and the podcast From Darkness to Life. The goal of our collective journey is to connect people with people, to strengthen communities through the power of shared experience. They pride themselves on authentic, honest connections with individuals that are rooted in shared experiences. They are there for many reasons, which you'll hear about in this episode, but what I know they are doing so amazingly well is they are helping people share their stories because every time that happens, it helps erase the shame for others, which helps them not feel so alone in their pain. This is my interview with Ryan. Hello, Ryan. How are you doing today? I am doing wonderful. Thanks for asking, Tiff. Thanks for making time to let me come on your podcast as well. No problem. I have wanted you on my podcast for almost a year now. And how I found you and the podcast that you're on is actually from Theo, Theo Fleury. He posted uh, something on his stories one day and I I went and checked it out and I was very pleasantly surprised to see that you are from the hat like I am. And for my listeners who have absolutely no idea what the hat is, it is a city in Alberta and it's called Medicine Hat. And Ryan and I are both from there. And so I know that we're going to talk about Medicine Hat. So everybody, the hat means Medicine Hat. So there, I just wanted to straighten that out in case anybody got confused. So Ryan is here to talk with me about his addiction and recovery story and what he is doing now with, Mm -hmm. with his journey. And I am really looking forward to getting into this with you. There's a lot of similarities, I'm sure that I've experienced with my brother. So, but I'd like to hear what you have been through. So how about you introduce yourself and let us know what's been going on. Awesome. Yeah, for sure. Thank you. And yeah, it's funny how we all cross paths through Mr. Theo Fleury, amazing gentleman. And we were lucky enough, fortunate enough to have him on our show as well. And an awesome story and what an awesome advocate for mental health and addiction as well, right? Yes. Incredible. Yeah. Yeah. So for me, myself, I I actually am not from Medicine Hat originally. I'm from Saskatchewan. I'm a prairie boy from Saskatchewan and I relocated to Medicine Hat in 2015. Hold on. I'm interrupting you. Where in Saskatchewan? Swift Current. I'm a Shonovan girl. Are you really? Yeah. Yeah. I spent <laughs> that is a lot wild. Of, I spent a lot of time in Shonovan over the years. I came from later on. Well, I'll get into that later on, but a lot of oil and gas in my background and spent a lot of time in that area. 
Yeah. I actually lived in Swift too for a bit. So Swift nice. and Shonovan. Yeah. Nice. So anyway, Swift. go on. Small, small world. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I, I, like I said, I relocated in 2015 to Medicine Hat. I, I enrolled in the Medicine Hat College there and took the addictions counseling program, but I'll, I'll jump back and just kind of give you maybe the Coles notes of my, my story and how I ended up becoming an addictions counselor. Mm-hmm. I, I grew up in Swift Current, like I said, and I grew up in a household that in all intents and purposes, I, I thought it was normal. I didn't know any different, right? And alcohol was always around. I played a lot of hockey growing up as most people from that part of the world do. Mm-hmm. And my dad played a lot of hockey too. He had a, a division one scholarship, played in Colorado Springs. He, well, then he went, had a few jobs, worked in the oil patch. And you know, as I grew up, I got to know, you know, these things about him and I wanted to really be like my dad. I thought he was a man's man and that's exactly was my role model. That's what I wanted to be. And so I started playing hockey and the whole time growing up, there was a lot of anger. There was a lot of, a lot of violence, a lot of alcohol involved in my household. And, and I just thought that was the normal. Like I said, I thought drinking and fighting and going to work were the normal things to do. If I wanted to be a man, that's what I should do. Mm-hmm. And that really took hold early on, but I started playing hockey. I, I excelled early on. So I always played a year or two up and hung out with the older guys and never really did feel like I belonged, but skill level, I belong. But other than that, maturity and mentality and all that, I didn't really belong with those older fellas. And I found quickly the easiest way to fit in was to drink with them. When they were drinking, I would drink with them. So around 14, I started into the alcohol with some of the guys on the team and but made everything kind of feel normal. It made that inadequacy I felt disappear. I could connect with them on that level. Yeah. And uh, yeah. So, and that just carried on throughout my entire life, that drinking and fitting in that way. I moved on. I played a little hockey in the States and I always seemed to find the same group of people that drank like I did on every team I played on. And, and it was just normal, right? If, if everybody drank the way I did, I sure didn't have a problem. And Nobody else would point it out or else maybe they had a problem. So mm-hmm. we just drank. What do you mean by drank like you did like to excess or just, just every day? Or what did, what did that look like for you? It wasn't early on. It wasn't every day, but it was to excess. Every time I drank, it wasn't, I always laugh at the individuals that I run into that can go for one drink after work or have a drink with supper. It was always, if we got 12 beer, or we got 18 beer. I was drinking them all. Mm-hmm. It was, the party was never over until the last was, one was gone. Absolutely. and and. Like I said, the individuals I surrounded myself with, we drank the same way. So I never thought it was a problem. And, and that led to a lot of downfalls in my in my early life. I didn't finish university in, in North Dakota. And I had something to blame it on all the time. Alcohol was never the problem in my mind. I never once would look at that as the issue. Mm-hmm. Um, I left my hockey career behind at that point and moved back to Saskatchewan. I had a fiance at that time. I had, we had a small boy. I moved back to Saskatchewan and just, like I said, wanted to be like my dad. So I got into the oil and gas industry mm-hmm. and just carried that mentality. I grew up with back into the workforce and it was easy to find the same group of people that drink like I did out in that industry. Mm-hmm. It was just common, right? We'd, yeah. we'd talk about the bar at work and we'd talk about work at the bar and that was all we did. Mm-hmm. Was that so, out on um, like out on rigs and stuff or was that uh, like an office I was in the pipeline industry. So I started at the bottom, um, riding in the front right seat of a crew truck with somebody else. And over the course of 15 years, I worked my way up into a management position. And so worked my way up the ladder. And that's part of my story as well. Is I, up until this point, 
I wanted to be exactly like my dad. And there was times in my life where I really despised my father, but on the other hand, I wanted to be just like him, which is mm-hmm. really confusing at that time for me. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And like I said, early on, violence was part of it too. There was fighting all the time. We were, whether it was on the ice, I was fighting or at bars, I was fighting. And it was just always this, this mentality of what a man looked like in my opinion. Right. And the alcohol made it easy. I never thought about consequences when I was under the influence. I just assumed that was what I was supposed to be doing. And, mm-hmm. and I, looking back now, man, I created a lot of chaos and ruined a lot of, a lot of situations with the violence and alcoholism, mm-hmm. which, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a big, long story to look back on and not carry any guilt or shame about it, but we'll get into that later on how I've dealt with all that. Mm-hmm. And so did you stick to alcohol or did it escalate to more than alcohol. I, I dabbled in marijuana when I was younger and that just wasn't for me. I didn't, I didn't like that feeling of being kind of sluggish and lethargic and always hungry. And I said, if I smoked a lot of marijuana, I'd be 400 pounds and jobless and just sit on the couch eating Taco Bell. <laughs> <laughs> the munchies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. So that wasn't really my thing. Alcohol was my thing for a very long time without knowing it was my thing. That was my go. And it wasn't until 2006, I'd worked my way up the ladder at work to, to a number two position. Um, which means when you're out in the field, you have a superintendent and then he has a number two, which a lot of this, a lot of the um, decisions and stuff fall on to the number two to go out and run the crew. And my dad happened to be the superintendent and we had an argument one day at work and something petty. He didn't like the way I did something. I got the same result, but I did it my own way type thing. And I remember telling him to beat it and he stormed off and left for town that afternoon. It was late in October or mid October. And he ended up, we all left about an hour after him and he ended up hitting some black ice with his truck that night rolled his truck and passed away oh my goodness yeah I'm sorry to hear that oh yeah it took a long time to get over that but you know I carried a lot of guilt for that but I found ways to through counseling and other things I found ways to deal with that Mm -hmm. but for the longest time he had phoned me four minutes before he rolled his truck and back in those days we still had the truck mounted phone and I remember Mm -hmm. looking at the phone and seeing it was his number and I thought fuck that I'll talk to you tomorrow and I yeah. pushed ignore and a few minutes later is when he passed away oh my gosh yeah and that's got away up, on you for a long time it, it, it sure did looking back now that was like the catalyst that started my self-destruction but being the man's man I didn't I had people telling me you should go to counseling and then we came up on the scene of the accident and saw it all and I saw him passed away in his truck and And the first thing I thought of was, I got to go tell my mom and I got to go tell my brother and these things, right? Because that's what a man would do. And I'll take this upon myself to do all these things. And so there's a lot of trauma involved in that and the responses from other people. And I carried a lot of that shame and guilt for a very long time, mostly guilt. And then it turned into shame later on. But I had a lot of people tell me, you you should go see a counselor. You should do these things for yourself. And I thought, no, that's not what this guy does. That's not what my dad would do. Mm -hmm. So with you know, a couple of days after his funeral, I went back to work and that's just what I thought I should do. Right. I got a family to look after. This is the man's role, all these things. And mm-hmm. just, I look back down and it was insane thinking, but that's all I knew at the time. So yeah, went back to work and I just, I started to progress a little higher up the ladder. I ended up taking over his seat as a superintendent, ran a crew for a couple of years and just started drinking a lot more. That's how I dealt with everything. Right. Mm-hmm. There was drinking on the way in from work. There was drinking once I got to town. There was maybe I'll show up at home tonight. Maybe I won't. It was just really chaotic. And never once did I think it was that big of a deal. It's just the way it is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Until about 2000, 
think uh, that was about five or six years after he passed away, about 2011, 2012 is when I got, just happened to stumble across some guys that were friends of mine on a hockey team and stumbled across them in a bathroom doing cocaine. And I thought, hmm, yeah, I'll give that a shot. And never thought of another thing of it, right? I, I left that night after doing it and never thought it was going to be a problem in my life. Um, I didn't see it for another three or four months and never once thought about it after that night. But then I tried it again when I saw it. And eventually I was in that circle of guys that they didn't have to hide it anymore. It was out on the table. It was we'd go to watch a football game. They brought it, all these things, right? So I started dabbling in it a little more and you know, not really knowing the power that that narcotics like that would have on the brain. And it wasn't long. Within three months of that first use at, or second use, I guess, I was buying it. I was, you know, getting into it a lot more than just once a weekend or once a month or whatever, right? I became yeah. daily user, had my own dealer, all these things. And mm-hmm. But the funny part with addiction, as I'm sure you've heard and maybe understand, is it's the only disease out there that tells us we don't have a problem. Uh-huh. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. So I never once thought it's I'd the come. one that masks the problem. All your totally. other diseases, it's like, there is something wrong with me. And this one's like, Mm-mm, I'm good. Yeah. Yeah. You can quit. I, and I went through all those different justifications in my mind, right? I don't have a problem. I can quit if I want. And then I would quit for one night and see, I can quit. I don't have a problem. And mm-hmm. it just spiraled out of control to the point where I ended up trying to in 2013, and I, and I look back now and it was more, I think, a cry for help. I attempted to take my life and ended up in a, in a psych ward and ended up in treatment. And I didn't have to face any consequences, though. I, I had the same life when I came out of treatment. I had the job. I had the, the finances, the marriage. I had everything. Everything just kind of got shuffled under the carpet. Mm-hmm. So I went back to work and that lasted about a year and a half. Well, six months I stayed in recovery. I wouldn't even call it recovery. I was clean and sober off drugs and alcohol, but I was far from any type of recovery. I relapsed six months later on alcohol. And within two hours, I had an eight ball in my pocket again. And down that rabbit hole, I went. And But I learned that the next day, the consequences were from the alcohol. People didn't know that I had used drugs again, but I was in the hot seat for for being drinking for mm-hmm. becoming intoxicated so my, my addict brain told me if you don't drink you can still use drugs and everything will be fine mm-hmm. and that's the path I took for the next year and a half I didn't need alcohol to to find my way to drugs anymore drugs were a staple in my life from the moment my feet hit the floor to the moment whatever time or day it was I went to bed mm-hmm. and using behind that curtain right behind that that mask that everything is okay and as long as I wasn't drinking people weren't questioning me I, I bought a with my ex-wife now, but the wife at that time, we bought a nice big house up on the hill and I got promotion. We had some vehicles and this and that and everything on the outside. I painted this picture that man, he's got it going on. He's doing so well, but behind that picture, I was crumbling and upstairs mentally I was broken. And the more drugs I used, the worse it got. But in my mind, that was the only way to escape from the stress and the pain and the guilt of all these lies I had created was to just keep using it. And it became this vicious circle of when you see those memes and you see these things on the internet about a ball and chain around your leg to addiction and or you're in a personal jail or man, can I resonate with every one of those? Because I wanted to quit using, but I knew I couldn't on my own. But if I reached out for help, I was in a position where I knew my whole world was going to come crumbling down the job. Everything was gone, mm-hmm. which at the end of the day, it all went anyway, but I still thought I could save it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yep. 
So what year was this that this that this crumbled for you? Since the end of 2014, 2015 is when I, you know, I, I stole a work truck. I took off in February for a weekend and fully knowing I wasn't coming back. And I went on a, I call it a run, my last run. I went on enough cocaine and enough alcohol and whatever else and thought that would be the end of it. And, you know, I, I was just talking about this this morning with another fellow that I spent 14 hours at the end of the day. It was three days later on a Monday morning, I spent 14 hours in a truck in a field, about two and a half hours. Well, you're from that part of the world. You know where Rosetown is probably. Yep. Yep. I sure do. Yeah. So I was up around Rosetown and filled a hand basket at a pharmacy full of, I didn't have much money left because my wife had caught on to me and she, you know, everything was frozen in the bank accounts. And mm-hmm. so whatever I had left in my pocket, I put it all into prescription drugs off or soup mm-hmm. fed all these different things and cough syrup and bought a couple bottles of vodka and had enough cocaine left that I thought that I could finish her off with all this. And I sat out in a field in this coolie for about 14 hours and just popped pills and drank syrup and booze and cocaine and just this wild cocktail on my way to suicide and mm-hmm. thought it was over. I remember going to sleep. It was about 1.32 in the morning and thought that was the end of it. And I was completely content with it. I hear a lot of people talk about suicide as being this this shameless kind of selfish act. And for me, it was the total opposite. I was completely at peace with it. I thought I'm going to get out of everybody's hair. The the problem is going to be gone. My kids will go to my funeral and stop. You know, they can mourn me one last time and move on with their lives and their mess of a dad will be gone. And my wife at that time can move on and all these things. And I was at peace with it. I thought this is the answer. And it was was about four or five in the morning. I got a knock on the window in, in complete darkness. And my uncle had found me, which is still to this day, nothing short of an act of God, I believe. Mm-hmm. I'd taken great, great lengths to, to be anonymous and, and not be found. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but he had some acquaintances that he grew up with in the RCMP that were retired now. And they managed to get up and contact the right people to have the OnStar in my truck turned on. What? Yeah. And that's how he ended up finding me. There was police and ambulances out on the highway I was like I said I was down in this coolie so he come out with his four-wheel drive and yeah so long story short I didn't complete suicide uh sorry I'm <laughs> wow that is unbelievable act of God like that that yeah. absolutely saved your life yes that saved absolutely. your life and the crazy part of that whole story is when I finally came to when he was banging on that truck window, I was so furious. I was so mad that somebody had found me because in my mind, that see that low self-worth piece and failure self-talk that I always had was like, see, you can't even fucking do this right. <laughs> and this is where I'm going to hop in here and talk a little yeah. about my brother, because that what you just described is how he described to me many times when He tried to OD and he would wake up and he would be madder than hell, Mm -hmm. madder than hell. And he did say to me one time, he's like, I don't know why he won't let me go. I don't know why he won't let me leave because there is no way in hell I should be alive right now with what I took. There is no way. And I kept telling him it's because you're here for a bigger purpose. And I need you to understand that that's why he's not letting you go yet. And so I completely get he, him and I had many candid conversations about 
that feeling that he had every time that he woke up and it wasn't the end. Right. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure we'll get into this later, but that's a common thread I find with a lot of individuals who are in that moment or that, that time frame where things have become so dark and it seems so hopeless to get out of it. When we, an individual like your brother sharing with you about overdosing and, and my experience with trying to take my life, it wasn't that that was the way that was the easy way out or that was the, I want to die. It was, I just want things to stop hurting. I, it's mm-hmm. the easiest way to put an end to this pain that the mental anguish that I was suffering. And I'm sure your brother could relate at the time that oh, I want to quit, but I don't know how, and I don't think it's possible. I'm done. This is mm-hmm. it. I'm going to die an addict. And, mm-hmm. and the, yeah. the actual detox process and how excruciatingly painful it is. And mm-hmm. that, that knowing that you to stop doing it, you have to go through that pain. And just that is part of what scares people too, and that they, they just don't even want to go through that pain. Absolutely. And especially if you're an opioid addict, right? I mean, the detox from that is I've, I've never done it myself. So I'm only going on other people's experiences, but the flu times a hundred or whatever they say, right? It's, it's absolutely awful. We, so my brother OD'd in July and my mom saved his life basically oh, because she, she went to his apartment and, and he was ODing and she took him to the hospital and that's definitely what saved him. But in middle of August, I, I said, we got to get him out of the hat. We got to get him away from the people that he's connecting with. And so bring him to my house. I'm, a, I'm in Turner Valley. And so he, him and my mom came up here for almost a week. And this is where I might cry, but I were, I walked him, I walked with him in that process of detoxing and I have never seen something so painful in all of my life. I, it was just excruciating watching him go through that. And I laid with him. He was bald. So I rubbed his head. I got him foot baths. I, I laid with him and listened to some motivational podcasts, just everything that I could to ease that pain, right? Yeah. Because, yeah, coming off of opiates is the worst thing I think that I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. So oh. anybody that goes through that, I have so much compassion for. And mm-hmm. anybody that's going through withdrawals on anything I have so much compassion for, and, and that is something that I'm grateful for because it's not an easy thing to go through. So, sorry. That's all right. Wow. So how did you get to your place of recovery and wanting to it to end? Yeah. Get better. Um, Wow. That was powerful. Thanks for sharing that with me. Holy smokes picking up where I left off there I ended up back in a, in a well I spent a lot of time in the ICU and had all the tubes and the hoses and everything wrapped up around me and ended up back in the psych ward for a while and then this time was a lot different though the job was gone obviously I stole a truck and my wife was at the time she was prepping some divorce papers my kids were devastated dad had been lying to them this whole time and life as I knew it was over so everything I was fighting to try to keep during my addiction and knew that I couldn't reach out for help because it was all going to come to the crashing down. I lost it in the end. And I went back to treatment. It was a private treatment center in 
Saskatchewan around Wilkie, Saskatchewan. I'd been there once before and I went back there thinking I was still suicidal. I, I just told the, the psychiatrist what they needed to hear. I was going to go to treatment. I was going to turn my life around all these things just to get out of the psych ward. Like I see so many people do. I got back to treatment and I still, two weeks into treatment, was still contemplating suicide and putting together a suicide plan in my head. I just knew I couldn't do it there because I like the staff and this and that. And I didn't want to put that on them. And, and it wasn't until there was a counselor there. I won't say his name, but there was a counselor there who was there the first time, but I didn't have much to do with him. And he had 20 at the time, 23 or 25 years in, in a 12-step program and was in recovery. And he was only one of the only people that could see through my bullshit. And he pulled me aside one day after a group and he said, listen, man, you are going to keep lying to yourself. You're going to end up dead. When you're ready to cut the bullshit and get honest with yourself, come find me and we'll do some work. And I remember looking at him thinking, you can't talk to me like that. You're a counselor. <laughs> How dare <laughs> <But> you? <laughs> totally, right? Yeah. But it, it turned a light bulb on. And that night I thought long and hard about it. And I talked to him the next day and that's who I worked with for the next, I was there for seven weeks total. And for the next five weeks, I worked day and day after day with that gentleman. And, and he started to show me that there was hope. And he shared a lot of his story with me. And, and I thought, holy shit, this guy's story is way worse than mine. And not that it's, we're not comparing stories, but if he can get out of that lifestyle and all the drugs and the addiction he was connected to, and man, there is hope. Why can't I do this? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I had met another individual in treatment there who was working there. She was on the staff. She had gone through, she had, I think, six months or three months of recovery at that time. And she was telling me she was planning a, a cross Canada bike trip, a pedal bike. And I thought, you're crazy. That's ridiculous. But, you know, by the time I left treatment, I stayed in touch with her and I had nothing else really happening. I didn't have a job. I We had sold our big house. So I had a little bit of money. And so I, I talked to my boys and they were all for it. I didn't want to leave them high and dry because dad had already left a few times. And so, yeah, I took part in this bike trip. We started uh, June 1st and initially we were just going to do it for our recovery and, and take ourselves out of society. Like you had said, you took your brother out of medicine hat. I always call it the scene of the crime. So I wanted to remove myself from the scene of the crime, take out all those existential stressors and all these things and just focus on me for a while. So that's how it started. We, we packed up all our camping gear and we, we took off from Vancouver June 1st and started to ride and camp every night. And slowly we built a Facebook page and we had some followers, mostly our family, just so we didn't have to text them all day long. And mm-hmm. it turned into quite a following. Then we decided, well, maybe we should start trying to raise some money for this treatment center we went to so that at least one or two people can go to treatment who can't afford the $15,000. Mm-hmm. Um, so by the time we got to Halifax, we I think we had eight or 900 followers and we'd raised $22,000, I think. Fantastic. Yeah. It was. And my, you've listened to the episode with my cousin. So yeah, same thing. Rode across Canada on bikes. And did you make it all the way to Newfoundland? We, that was our plan. But by the time we got to Halifax, we had both enrolled in the Medicine Hat College for the addictions counseling program during the bike trip. Oh, okay. By the time we breakdowns and weather and this and that, it took 84 days to get to Halifax. And we thought, man, we don't have enough time to do Newfoundland because yeah. school starts in a week. So we got on the train and got back to Saskatchewan. Four days later, I drove to the hat and started college. So, Oh, wow. And yeah. so that got you into the, the addiction counseling program. And mm-hmm. tell me a little bit about that. I thought I would sail in there thinking I'm in recovery. This is going to be a breeze. I know everything there is to know about addiction because I lived it, but I completely forgot about the academic piece. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. That you have to study and 
Oh, yeah. God, research that's, papers. That's annoying. And, <laughs> yeah. So here I am at 40 going back to school as a mature student and uh, trying to wrap my brain, especially I'm only at that time, I think seven or eight months into recovery and the fog is lifted now, but you know, the short-term memory complications still from massive cocaine abuse was still there and mm-hmm. trying to write exams was so difficult for me. I could write research papers because I had all the material in front of me, but trying to memorize and study and write an exam was terrible for me. I couldn't do it. So I, yeah. it was a real struggle for me to find that balance of what can I accept for a mark? Cause growing up where I grew up and as my dad underneath my dad, it was a 85 average or nothing for him. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I had a real struggle with that, but I, I ended up making it through. I didn't have honors or Dean's list or anything, but I made it through the program, which is quite something because that program itself, I think we had 35, maybe roughly students on day one and when it was time to go out on practicum, five of us went out on practicum. So it was a pretty intensive course. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And where do you where do you do your counseling? I, I ended up doing a couple of practicums in Regina at the health region there. And then I got a job with Canadian Mental Health back when Medicine Hat as the addiction crisis worker. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had a, a role collaborating with the police service. So I did that for three years. And then we started our collective journey while I was in that role. And it's kind of funny because now I do my own stuff. I resigned from CMHA last July. Mm-hmm. And once our collective journey got enough funding, we fundraised and we got some grants from the government. And so I moved over there full time. So I'm a full time employee at our collective journey as of last August. And just recently started doing a little bit of private counseling on the side. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, it's been quite a quite a journey. No kidding. So let's talk about our collective journey. That is how I found you. And what you guys are doing is nothing short of amazing. And that is why I wanted you on my podcast. I know a lot of people still in Medicine Hat and surrounding area. And yeah, I need them to know about you because of the work that you guys are doing. So tell me about that. I really appreciate your interest in given us this platform to talk about it as well, because it is powerful and it's it's needed, right? We talk about filling gaps and that's kind of the reason we started OCJ was when we had the, I'm not sure if all the listeners know, but there was a contagion of suicides over the last, I think it was last year and into the year before that, where a group of gentlemen were taking their lives and they were all friend. It was a friend circle, right? And how many was there again? seven or something yeah definitely there it was closing in on double digits yeah it was a it was a big number for sure and it was September of last no two years ago now yeah we just finished our one year anniversary but September of that year we in 2020 we got together Damien Rick and I what started with Damien and Rick they're the other two Mm co-founders we're all in recovery we're big on not sharing each other's stories because there are stories to tell but those guys they share them in the newspapers. They don't care. We got together. They were really interested in doing something more because there was all these awareness programs and suicide prevention and awareness and stuff. And they've been around for years, but here we are in the middle of a suicide crisis with all these gentlemen taking their lives. And so what's another piece? What's the action piece? What can we do differently? And, uh, you know, long story short, they got in touch with CMHA. They got put in touch with me. I ended up at a table with them having coffee one day. And in full transparency, I thought this is going to end up getting referred somewhere else. And but when I sat with these two dudes and I, I knew them from the recovery circles in Medicine Hat, but I didn't know them personally. It turned into a three and a half hour coffee. And we started by sharing our stories back and forth, our experience with addiction, and more so our experience with recovery and what we did and what worked for us to get out of addiction. And by the end of that conversation, we were finishing each other's sentences because there were so many common threads. Yeah. 
And we noticed maybe we need to tell what we said at the time, I wish we had a podcast and we should have been recording this because it was an amazing conversation. So we ended up on another gentleman's podcast, The Forgotten Corner was another local podcast in Medicine Hut. Mm-hmm. They had really good uh, downloads from that episode. And we decided let's have our own podcast and just share these stories. Let's share our stories with hopes that somebody out there who's really struggling where we were at one time will resonate with parts of our story and give them an opportunity to reach out, kind of create that safe space. And, and in all three of our stories, we talk about when we tried, came to the moments where we were going to take our lives, it wouldn't have mattered. I have a semicolon tattoo and I have all these different things. I know the crisis numbers and in that moment, in that truck, none of that stuff would have mattered. Mm-hmm. You know, it's way too late for that. So we thought if we can share our stories, maybe someone resonates two or three months before we got to the end Yeah, and they'll reach out then. So we started doing that. And then we started having local individuals from the community that we knew who were in recovery share their stories because we're three bearded dudes with tattoos and we're not going to resonate with everybody out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we had some ladies and we had some, some professionals. And then we started having professionals come on who deal with mental health and addiction in their profession and mm-hmm. sharing some different perspectives. And it really took off. It wasn't just the podcast. Our main goal was when somebody reaches out and somebody better be there because in Rick's story, he did what he was supposed to do. He went to, it was ADAC at that time and told him he was fairly suicidal and he didn't know what he was. He didn't know he was an alcoholic at the time. And he got a handful of pamphlets and said, we can see you in four weeks or something like that. And he walked out of there thinking, man, I'm even a burden on the system now. Mm-hmm. So we thought somebody better be there to answer the phone at any time when somebody phones. And so that's our thing is if somebody reaches out on social media or emails us or phones us, Somebody better answer the phone because that window of opportunity closes so fast. If you check that box and say, I reached out and nobody was there to help. Now that's just another example or another, it reaffirms that man, nobody cares. Mm -hmm. So how have you convinced people that you can reach out? Because I know even for myself on my social media and on my podcast, I'm always saying like, I'm a DM away. I am a message away. If you ever need to talk, I'm here. How do you, how do you convince those people that you really will be there? Just by being authentic, I think Tiff is, and I'm sure it's the same for you, right? We see on social media, DM me if you're struggling, all these things, like it seems like the new catchphrase. And I don't know how many people are actually there. If you direct message them, I don't test it out, but I think by being authentic and actually being there, when somebody reaches out, it's usually within, unless it's three in the morning or something, somebody usually replies within 10 minutes. We, mm-hmm. we message them back or we phone them back, right? And if they do phone at that three o'clock hour, which anybody who's been in active addiction knows crisis doesn't happen from eight to four, usually it's it's yeah. Sunday night at two in the morning when you got to go to work the next day and you're out of cocaine or something. Yeah, exactly. So we, tr- you know, leave a voicemail and, and we're always checking our phones. We will get back to you the very next morning um, or whenever I get to the message. Mm-hmm. It's, it's crucial, I think, because I know if, if that, if somebody finally gets the courage to reach out and nobody's there to, to answer the phone or to, to just be there to listen, they may never reach out again. Mm-hmm. And have you found that people are reaching out and taking you oh, like, yeah, absolutely. they are. That's yeah, we, from day one, we've kept the spreadsheet. We keep some data and everything is anonymous when someone reaches out to us. Just like if you're reaching out to a psychologist or a therapist, everything is confidential and anonymous. Um, we don't share, even amongst our group, we don't share names with who we're working with, but we've kept that data sheet basically for 
for funding requirements, right? If, if we're going to get some funding, we better have some proof that, that this is working or what we're doing is needed. And up to date now, we're closing in on 200 people who have reached out in the oh, last- Oh, wow. Yeah. And a lot of that isn't, isn't hands-on. I'm, I, I need help getting into recovery, but it's a lot of family members. What do I do? My son is maybe addicted to alcohol or my daughter or my spouse or this or that. And if you don't know and you haven't been down that path before, you don't know where the resources are or you mm-hmm. don't know how to deal with it. Mm-hmm. So we work with a lot of family members, a lot of spouses, but a lot of people, I'd say over half of them are the ones that they've recognized they have a problem or they've heard that some of our stories on our podcast and they think if he's an alcoholic or that's his problem, maybe that's, I'm experiencing A, B, C, and D, maybe that's my problem. Mm-hmm. And they reach out and we just sit down and have a, most of the time, if it's, if it's feasible, we sit down face to face and have a conversation over a coffee or something and mm-hmm. Just discuss you, it, right? I just had a thought. Do you, is your podcast listened to in some recovery centers? I don't know if it is in some recovery centers or not. We're always open wherever we have this thing at the very start where we're forming our collective journey to help our community. Mm-hmm. But once you take, as once you take things online, it goes wherever it's going to go. Mm-hmm. You know, the listener base is far and wide now. And now we've had, we had one gentleman contact us from South America who had some struggles <laughs> with alcohol. That like that is just incredible when that happens. Yeah. I, I love hearing these stories of how oh. far your impact can reach. Like it's it's incredible. For sure. And if it helps one person, that's kind of our motto. It's worth it every single time. If we're speaking to a room of 200 people and one person takes something away from it mm-hmm. and contacts us, it's worth it every time. That's why I do what I'm doing. If it yeah. if it's one person that resonated with two seconds of what I said, that's good. I'm good because you're not going to reach everybody. And that is unbelievable. So speaking of funding and you've been in the recovery world, what do you think, where are the gaps in terms of the recovery centers themselves or why people actually don't take that step. I think there's gaps. It doesn't matter what industry you're in, there's going to be gaps, right? And that's, like I said earlier, that's why we formed OCJ was to try to fill a gap and help people navigate. We're not trying to take, what we like to say is all the agencies out there are are doing the best they can with what they have. And there's Mm -hmm. some amazing things being done in our community and across the country, I'm sure. Yep. But capacity seems to be an issue, especially in the COVID world, right? Everybody's cut their capacity in half. And mm-hmm. what used to be a three-month wait list, which is crazy in my opinion, is now a six-month wait list to get in. So capacity is a huge one. I think one of the other biggest gaps is when you go to treatment, and I didn't realize this until I went to treatment, a lot of treatment centers, it's like a almost like a cookie-cutter approach, right? You have different models of recovery you can work, and depending which treatment center you go to, you get a different model. But everybody who goes in there, Basically, I mean, there's a few nuances, a few differences, but basically gets the same program handed to them and says, here's your 30 day program. And we're all going to work through it at the same time. And, and for me, that didn't, that just doesn't really work because we're all different and everybody's approach to recovery is going to be different, just like Mm -hmm. everybody's path to addiction. So I think that's a big gap too. And it all comes down. I think it all comes down to capacity and time and funding. You only have X amount of time in a treatment center. So not everybody's going to get the amount of one-on-one, you know, care and therapy that they need because of the requirements to check that box that we've moved this many people through every month or every year. And I think that's a big one. And I would say 
just the ability to not treatment isn't the fix, isn't the end all be all. It's not the fix for everybody. It's only one step in the, in the recovery journey, I think. And for me, it was the education piece was a huge piece for me when I went to treatment the first time and, and everybody around me thought he's been to treatment. That should be the end of it. He's, he's better now. And I didn't know any better. I thought, well, that didn't do shit for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> right? yeah. Um, I think that's a big piece in it. There's just so many, it's such a big question. Where are the gaps? And I think in a perfect world, if we had the right amount of funding and we could really do some awesome programming out there, but it all comes down to the individual who needs the help being willing to, to take the first step and to do the work because you could have the best counselor, the best treatment center, the you know five stars across the board. And if the individual who's struggling with addiction doesn't want to put the work in, nothing's going to change. And I learned that the hard way. So I have a couple of <laughs> couple things to say about this section. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I don't even know. I don't want to get on a soapbox, so I'm not going to get sure. on a soapbox. But this summer when my brother OD'd, that was very eye-opening. He was at a place where he was ready. Yeah. He, he was so ready to go. And my mom and I went with him to the recovery center in Medicine Hat sat in that front lobby and, and sat with one of the counselors there who I absolutely love. I'm not going to name her, but she was so incredibly compassionate as she sat and talked to my brother. My brother was, this was the two days after he almost died, but he was still so like he took so much fentanyl that it's, I don't even know how he didn't die. But as I was sitting there, it was very eye opening for me where some of the gaps, where a big gap is. And that's when you're an addict and when you're in that place where, where you're high, how in the hell do you fill out forms? Mm-hmm. Yeah. To get into these places, like the paperwork to get into these facilities is incredible. Yeah. And I remember watching my brother sitting at this table with a pen in his hand and he was just zooed. Like, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, okay, we need, do you need help? We need to help you write this stuff out. We need, and like, when I think about, and he had my mom and I there with him, right. there's people that don't have anybody with them. Mm-hmm. And so that for sure is a gap, but I do know that there are resources out there, mobile resources where they'll go to you and they will help you fill out that paperwork and, and do all that work. But I think they're so overwhelmed that there's more funding needed for that. For sure. For sure. Yeah. Another gap I heard is actually because of the amount of treatment facilities just in Alberta and they all do different things is the transportation to get to these places. Like that's what this counselor, I had a really good conversation with her after my brother passed away. And she just said, a lot of people are ready to go there. They want to go, but they don't have the means to get there. And so like just something as simple in our world, right? Driving somewhere is like the roadblock for them and how to get them there and how to get them there safely, right? Mm-hmm. When when they're in that state. So 
yeah, there's, there's so much that can be done, but it comes down to funding and it comes down to resources and the people to actually do the work. So we, we've been talking about starting a foundation in my brother's name, and that will be something we are going to be doing this year. And so that's where I'm always looking and talking to people about where those gaps are and where that money can be best used. So any, any other gaps you see along your journey, please let me know. (laughs) I will definitely do that. And just to touch on that transportation one that I'm glad you brought that up because that's been an ongoing barrier for people going to treatment for the last, I'd say probably three years, ever since they they discontinued the Greyhound bus line, there isn't really a, a, there's the shuttle that goes from Medicine Hat to Calgary, unless they've stopped that one now. But when I was at CMHA as well, I always faced that barrier. We were fortunate enough with my role. We had the funding that I drove people to Lethbridge. I drove them to Oleg Minister, Calgary, Pinoca, you name it. I was, if, and I would have that conversation with the director and they were fully on board. I said, if that's the only barrier when somebody's ready to go to treatment, let's eliminate it right off the bat. Mm-hmm. So we flew somebody to Edmonton. We, and we have continued to do something like that at our collective journey as well, where people always ask, where did the donations go that we, we receive? And the, the smaller donations go into a pool for that kind of barrier right there. If somebody reaches out and they want to get to treatment and transportation is the last barrier that's they're facing, mm-hmm. well, we eliminate, we'll eliminate it. Whether it's Rick takes the afternoon off of work or drives them himself in his truck or I'll drive them or whatever, right? Because mm-hmm. there's so many other barriers that are lined up. And if you get to that very last one, that one should be obsolete. That one should not even be there. <laughs> For sure. Not at all. Like the the wait time and the beds and everything, that obviously is the biggest one. And that that's what was a big barrier for my brother, for sure. But yeah, if you can get rid of those, what could be small barriers, I think we could definitely help a lot more people. Absolutely. And one of the other cool things that I like to just suggest to people all the time is I see so many people... When they're ready to go to treatment, they jump at the first available bed. Mm-hmm. And that usually, it might work for some people. Maybe they just need a safe place, a safe space to go for 30 days or something. And maybe that's the answer. But there's, like we talked about, there's so many differences in modalities and programming at every treatment center that when you get there, especially let's say you're against 12 step and you get there and it's a 12 step based recovery center. What are the odds you're going to finish at A or you're going to get anything out of it? Mm-hmm. So it's like, that's what we try to help people too, is let's research and find the best fit for you. It might be a six month wait, but now we're going to try to fill that gap leading up to that. And how's that going to be done? Mm-hmm. Because yeah, just jumping at the first available bed isn't always the right answer either. So just to clarify, like, for example, they, they might be an alcoholic want needing treatment for, for that, but the underlying issue might be trauma and yeah. going to somewhere that can help them resolve some trauma stuff first. Is that what Absolutely. you're talking about? Yep. Something like that. Or maybe it's a more of a faith-based recovery center and you're a atheist. Yeah. It's not going to, it's not going to work. Gonna you, work. Right? Yeah. <laughs> or it'll or be harder. Yeah. So much trauma, so much addiction stems from trauma, right? So if you have trauma, maybe inflicted on you from the other sex or the other gender, maybe a Maybe a women's or a men's only treatment center is the one for you. You don't want to go to a co-ed treatment center, whatever that looks like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It takes, it takes a lot of, a lot of exploration, I think, to find, to give you your best chance at success. Cause if, I, I know so many people that have been to eight, nine, whatever, 13 treatment centers and oh, it didn't work again. It didn't work again. Mm-hmm. 
and there's something missing in my opinion all the time right maybe we didn't look at this or maybe you didn't think about this factor and mm-hmm. yeah it's a complex issue for sure it's not just go to treatment and one and done usually yeah so you've mentioned we've talked about your podcast and it's from darkness to life mm-hmm. which is great i love it what do you think the through line is from the stories that you've heard so far over your your episodes Right. A lot. We, we like to say that all our stories are different, but the feelings that come with them are the same. And I think that has a lot to do with, it doesn't matter where you come from, what demographic, what level of income, the feelings that you experience in addiction are the same. And a lot of it is that isolation at the end. It's I'm alone in this. Nobody's ever going to understand. And that's the common thread I hear in a lot of stories. Right. And I hear it all the time when I'm working with people too, is oh, you sit back, you're not going to believe this or everything is We always think in addiction that our story is the worst. And if anybody hears it and knows what we've done, they're going to shun us or we're going to be looked down upon or whatever, right? And I always find that's a common thread for sure is is the the individual story. The feelings that come with that story are always the same. It's the guilt. And then for me, I know we've talked about a lot on our podcast and it was Brene Brown who said it best for me was when shame, when guilt switches to shame. And I look at my story and I look, I talk to Rick about it. He looks at his story and it's a very small window. I carried a lot of guilt for, you know, my lifestyle and, and the addiction and all the, the things I did in my addiction that I never thought in a million years I'd do, but it's that compulsion to use. And you're always thinking about it when that guilt shifted to shame. And I started to believe that there was no way out and I'm the mistake and I'm just going to eliminate the mistake then. And it was about four or five days where I went from never once thinking about suicide to made that switch and I was taking my life it can be a very quick switch very Mm -hmm. quick so it's getting to those people before they hit that shame absolutely yeah oh and and another comment there is trauma right yeah Gabor Mate talks about all the time most professionals in the addiction world talk about it is trauma for sure is one of the underlying issues or underlying causes for addiction and for me it wasn't I didn't think like I said earlier on I thought I came from a normal home and I didn't I never would have ever thought I had a traumatic experience growing up but now I look back and I think wow there it's not the event itself it's how I processed it and and there's a lot of trauma back then mm-hmm. one thing that I so my brother did go to um, a trauma specialist in the hat nice. and I actually went with him to the third appointment and it was a six-hour appointment and wow. it was very powerful I hope to have this person on my podcast this season as well. But one thing that resonated for me is because he also had a traumatic experience with his own family member. And it was when he made the decision to forgive him. Yeah. And it was that that moment where the forgiveness and true forgiveness happened Mm -hmm. that he was released. The family member wasn't yet, but he was released and that's what helped him tremendously. So just hearing that, and I know it's not easy to forgive some of the trauma that you've experienced, but if, if it's part of the solution, then yeah, I just, I was amazed when I heard that. Yeah. Really amazed. That's, that's one of those light switch moments for me too. And somebody, you always hear people ask if you could have dinner or sit down and have lunch with one person, who would it be? either alive or passed away or whatever. Right. And I, 
know, you hear all the big celebrities. And for me, it would be my dad. And I say that all the time because until he passed away, I, I can't really remember having one genuine in-depth conversation with him. It was always about work or sports or bragging about this or that or the fights and all these things and all these bullshit conversations now. And I would love to sit down and talk to him about real life things and trauma and feelings. Mm -hmm. We weren't allowed to talk about feelings. So I'd love to just throw that on him and see what his response is and tell him that I don't hold any animosity or any grudge or resentment against you because I've worked through it all. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that you you nailed it. Like that was a very freeing moment when I finally sat down and became okay with doing that work through that part of my life and mm-hmm. came to that realization that, man, I don't hate you. Nope. You were doing the best you could with what you had. And who knows, that's the way you were brought up and your dad was brought up. And was there's a lot times. of generational stuff that comes through. Right. And Absolutely. so that is, that is incredible that you got to that place as well by mm-hmm. recognizing that just forgiveness and being okay and releasing it just gives you so much more peace, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's those goosebump moments. I always talk about it on our show and a listener talks about certain things and I get the goosebumps. I know it's resonated with me and it's really touched a button that mm-hmm. I've experienced something similar and so when I hear that piece, when I'm talking with somebody like yourself, or I, I remember talking to Theo Fleury about it and him talking about forgiving his abuser. And mm-hmm. it's like, wow, those mm-hmm. are the freeing moments in life. Mm-hmm. And oh, yeah, I could go oh. for hours about that. <laughs> this has been so incredible, Ryan. Oh my gosh. Um, so where can people find you and your other co-hosts on our collective journey? and from darkness to life, because they all need to hear this. Yeah, I appreciate that. So there's myself, the other co-founders are Damian Davis, Rick Armstrong. We also have Derek Lilico and Amber Hansen have come on board as recovery coaches. That's one other piece I'll just touch on quickly. Mm -hmm. So we took some training to fill another gap, right? We took some training from a very well-known institute in Vancouver called Orca. They do recovery coach training. So we have people who have been trained now through their program. So we have a few recovery coaches, four of us now, and that's to help fill that gap. When somebody gets that three or four month waiting period to go to treatment, what do you do now? That's where we can come in, right? You get a recovery coach and they'll help you find your goals. And it's all based on what the individual wants, right? It's not us telling them what they need, Mm -hmm. but we're going to be there to help motivate you and through motivational interviewing, all these different things to keep you going to get to that treatment date. Mm -hmm. That's huge huge. Sorry to interrupt you, but yeah, this, this is what my brother could have used in that, in that period between August and when he was supposed to go to treatment. Yeah. And instead, and that's something that we battle with, with our own internal stuff, right. Is we didn't necessarily keep him away from the bad guys in that last month. But what do you do? Right. He's a girl. And that's the thing. That's the thing that we struggled with too, is these are adults (laughs) and you're, you're limited at a certain point with what you can do with an adult. And so that's that piece that you guys are doing that you're offering is Mm -hmm. huge. And it's, it's part of an aftercare program too, right? So if you're coming out of treatment, get connected to a recovery coach and they'll help you navigate what your next steps are and help you find your way into long-term recovery. Cause it's not easy either. Once you come out of treatment, if you don't know where all these resources are, or you don't 
lot of them are terrifying. I remember going to my first 12 step meeting, not wanting to go. I sat in the car for 20 minutes thinking, man, what is going to be behind that door? And if I would have had a recovery coach to walk me through that door the first time, it would have been amazing mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or easier anyway. So easier, yeah. that piece fills a lot of gaps. So yeah, those are the individuals involved with our collective journey. We have our podcast, like we were talked about from darkness to life. And that's, I got to have a shout out for Rob and Dave at the plugged in media network. Cause they are the guys who we came across. They gave us their studio. They produce it. They promote it. They, they do all the behind the scenes stuff for us. So they're a lifesaver being mm-hmm. hooked up with them. Mm-hmm. Um, Poncho from Rock 105 does the facilitating of our podcast. Another shout out to him, an amazing gentleman. Mm-hmm. And we all have our stories, right? Once I got to know individuals that have come across our path, we all have a story and eventually we're going to all tell them. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's important that we all do. Every story is important. Every single story. Absolutely. Yeah. I, we could go on about that piece for hours. I know because I hear so many people say, I don't have a story quite like yours. And I said, that's amazing because I, there's already a story just like mine out there. Let's hear yours. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, through our website, our collectivejourney.ca hosts all our podcasts. You can find them on all the major streaming services, Apple, Spotify, Google, Facebook, our collective journey, Instagram at our collective journey. And we have a pretty good social media presence. Yeah. And just if anybody's listening and resonates or wants to know more through direct message on any of those social platforms, you can email us at help at our collective journey.ca and those come directly to myself and Rick. So somebody is going to get back to you. And yeah, we're always looking for opportunities to, to collaborate with other agencies, individuals. Now that was our biggest thing at the start was instead of jumping full steam ahead and get out there and we're going to fix the world, which we all know is impossible. We spent the first few months collaborating with existing agencies and people that we know through connections and through my previous employment. And because if somebody reaches out to us and they have all these other issues that they need guidance on or professional support, we better have some connections built in order to walk them through the doors of mm-hmm. whether it's Keys to Hope or whether it's the provincial building or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. So we built a lot of connections prior to starting this. So that addiction, it's, if it's cocaine, Rick always says that if it's cocaine, whiskey, and women, that's subject matter experts right here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but if it's other things, we're going to help you find those people. We're not, that's not my wheelhouse and I'm not even going to pretend to know anything about it, but we'll help you find the people that do know. Yeah. And connections is huge, right? That's what everybody needs and wants in most is connecting with people and Mm -hmm. that you guys are facilitating that with the right people that they need to see. Unbelievable. I am so, so grateful for this. I end every interview with what I'm grateful for. And then I ask you, so my gratitude today is actually for Theo Fleury because without Theo, I would not have been introduced to you and our collective journey. So I am super grateful for Theo today. What are you grateful for today? Oh man, so many things, but you know, I always come back to the one thing is I'm grateful to have a choice today. When I was in active addiction, I didn't have a choice. And I hear people all the time say, oh, you always have a choice. You choose to use. And But when that addiction, you're full-blown addict and you have the compulsion, the obsession to use takes over, it's completely rewired your brain. I didn't have a choice every morning. Like I said earlier, I would get up and as soon as my feet hit the floor, even though I didn't want to use that day, I was using within five minutes. Mm-hmm. And I hated myself for it. So I'm grateful to have a choice today. I'm grateful to have a, a healthy life. I'm grateful for my fiance. I'm grateful for our new little boy, Oliver. He's five months yesterday. I have two other sons. I'm great. I'm just grateful to have family. I'm grateful for health. And my, I found, 
I found a belief in a higher power. And for me, that's God nowadays. And I'm grateful for that. I have something out there that I can believe in that because I always say my best thinking took me to suicide. Mm -hmm. I don't know everything. I need all the help I can get and I still need it. Mm -hmm. And ask on the daily. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I'm grateful for a lot of things, but it all starts with my recovery and having a choice because if I don't have my recovery, if I put that second behind my family or I put it behind anything, those things are all gone eventually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, wow, that's awesome. So, yeah. so grateful for, for this opportunity to chat with you about this. It's been, I'm just so grateful. So grateful. Yeah. So thank yeah. you again for your time and everybody, please go and check out our collective journey and the podcast from darkness to life, because it will help somebody. If, even if it's not you, it could help somebody that, you know, so thank you, you, Ryan. Thank you very much for making time and having us on today. We're forever grateful. Every time I get done interviewing my guests, I actually have to sit back for a bit and just breathe, take it in, take in the conversation and the connections that we can make with one another to bring hope to others out there that may feel there is nothing left for them. That was definitely the case with this interview. Ryan, thank you again for everything you and the rest of your crew at OCJ are doing in this world and in your community. You truly are saving lives and you need to hear that. You are all taking your hard, beautiful journeys and helping others. And to me, there is no bigger sign of love than that. We are here to help each other and to love each other. If you know someone who would resonate with this episode and could use the help that OCJ and their podcast offers, please, please, please share this episode with them. And lastly, I wanted to let you all know that I have graduated and am an official soul coach. And over the next month and a half, you will see some big things happening in my coaching practice. I will keep you updated here and on my website and my social channels. So stay tuned. Thanks for being here today with Ryan and I. We are so, so grateful. And until next time, please be kind and stay well. Bye-bye.